It's good to see all of you again. I know I've said that before, but I, I mean that. Every week it's so good. It's my favorite part of the week to come and to see all of your faces, the fellowship together with you before the Lord. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. We're going to start this morning, but we won't finish until the next Lord's Day as we conclude with Christianity in the home. So this morning I want us to begin looking at Christianity in the home and then conclude by looking at that next week in verse 7. Remember the context into which uh, these passages fall. The Apostle Peter is addressing these early Christians in a culture that is hostile to their new faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this new gospel message. And so they encounter, as is to be expected in the world, great resistance and hostility towards their new faith. Many of them are undergoing persecution to one degree or another. And so very, as so much of the Christian life is very antithetical to the way we might think it should be handled, the Apostle Peter delivers what is, in the mind of God, the greatest defense for the gospel message. It is a way of life that gives platform for our words to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but that is impossible unless our lives first give it a validity or credibility. The Apostle Peter is writing, beginning all the way back in chapter 2, verse 13, down through chapter 3, that platform. And that is the platform of a submissive spirit, a non-quarrelsome spirit, a spirit that seeks to humble itself and demonstrate that it has been changed from its independence and pride and selfishness to be able to live humbly before other people and before the world so that they see there is something different in us and that then giving us the ability to, as he will say in verse 15 of this chapter, give a defense with words of our faith that are backed up by a life lived in faith. And so Peter now gets from the civic square from the arena of employment that we saw last week, now to the home. And so he is covering all the bases. This is everywhere we would possibly go in the span of a week's time. We live in the civic world. We live in the world of our labor. We live in the home. And so Peter begins with addressing Christian wives. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. 
For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. Father, help us as we seek to understand your word this morning. Lord, we pray that any preconceived ideas about what Peter is trying to say here that have been planted in our minds by a culture that is anything but selfless and humble and submissive, that actually seeks to undermine this teaching, we pray, Father, that that would be put out of our minds and that we would simply hear your word speak because it is perfect. It is without flaw or failure. Father, we understand that men fail and women fail in their attempts to institute certain ideologies. And some of those are absolutely godless and have no place within the Christian realm, even though they may use Christian language. Father, we pray that the pure, undefiled, right teaching of the Word of God would be present in our minds this morning so that we would see what your divine and perfect and inerrant mind desires for us to know. And so, Father, may we put away things that may be a hindrance to our understanding, and may your word in the hand of your Holy Spirit speak with power and with clarity. And Lord, that we would see this applied in our lives in such ways that we have new and heretofore unthinkable opportunities to proclaim the gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, your Son, Father, who submitted himself to you for our sake, all the way to the point of his own death on the cross, that he might redeem us from our sins. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want you to notice this morning as we jump straight into the text that Peter directly ties what is coming for the rest of the passage this morning of our consideration with what has come before it. Peter says, in the same way. What way? What is Peter referring to as he links this morning's text with the texts that have preceded it? The way that Peter is speaking of is the way of the gospel. It is that gospel change that comes to every believer with all its power and all of its changing abilities to endue us with the grace and the dignity of a well-ordered life that we might submit in such a way that people around us look and say, that is not normal. If you look at the world around us, again, it is not a peaceful place. We are literally experiencing, it seems like, isn't it true that each day brings a new chapter and what judges said that there was no ruler and everyone simply does what is right in their own eyes. Every man has been told that he is his own master and that he is, uh, you know, to dictate the course of his own life. And that kind of thinking, brothers and sisters, has consequence. When, when we view ourselves as autonomous and above everyone and everything else, it makes it difficult to get along with anyone. Have you noticed that? 
Self-important people are the hardest people to get along with. They're full of themselves. They answer to no one. They are accountable to no one. And then comes Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it changes the heart so that the heart is made different. A new creation in Christ, one that desires to please Christ above all else. And as a result, takes upon it the mind of a servant, the mind that Jesus himself had, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, so that we might serve others in humility and in grace and yet in power. It takes much power to say no to our flesh and to live the submissive life that Peter is speaking of. And so here in our text this morning, Peter lists three principles for living that principled life as a result of the change that Jesus makes in all of us. Again, I call you to remember that the natural mind, as we are born sinners, every one of us, our default setting, if you will, is absolutely indisposed to this sort of living. Unredeemed humanity only has the capacity to please ourselves to make much of ourselves in one way or another. And again, I understand that that takes on many different forms. It's not always beating one's chest and boasting verbally about how wonderful we are. There's many ways that we communicate the message that we believe we deserve the honor, the credit, the glory, the pleasing. Yet as Christians, we are called Not to live for ourselves, but to live for others, aren't we? We're called to live a selfless life. Our own Savior lived an absolutely selfless life. And we are to live selflessly first to Christ. And in living selflessly for Christ, that means we will live selflessly for others. Jesus provided that example that Paul then elaborates on. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, just listen to these verses. Paul says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. I'm reminded of the young man Timothy, Paul's protege. Paul sent him. To minister because he says of Timothy, he has no other man in mind of like mind who would naturally care for those people, live selflessly for those people. What a great commendation to have made of us. And so we come to passages like this morning, and I will be honest. This is not one of the easier passages to preach in the world in which we live. Because it is misunderstood and it is abused on both sides. Both of those who refuse to hear it and refuse to take upon them the the mantle of Christ, that humble and submissive living, and of those who would seize on this and abuse it. 
demanding, abusive expectations of what submission is. And so there is a knife's edge and there are errors on both sides this morning and has created no small amount of misunderstanding about what Peter even means by wives submitting to their husbands. We have grown up in an era, we've all lived through an era of really a feminist uprising and a battle we're told that is of the sexes, but really it's not a battle of the sexes, it's a battle of sinners, that's the, the, the real battle is not between men and women. The real, real battle is between sinner and sinner. And that is what Peter is seizing upon here. He is not demeaning women in any way. He's not calling for servile slavery here. But he is calling for a dignified and right order that we would see peace where there has only been battles in the past. The battles that we fight in this area of submission, regardless of the arena, is a battle for ourselves. And the submission that we would espouse is often the submission we want to see others display to us. But as we'll find out in verse 8 of this same chapter, Peter says, to sum it all up, after giving you all of these examples of where submission is to occur, all of you in brotherly love and harmony, humility, be submissive to one another. So it's a call that is incumbent upon on us, all of us, but it takes on different forms. And we display it differently, don't we, in different arenas. We, we, we relate to our spouses differently than we relate to our bosses. And we relate to our bosses differently than we relate to the civil magistrate. But overall, there is a spirit of humility and submission that Christ is calling us to in our various roles that portray a change of heart that makes that submission possible. And so Peter wants to make this clear as to what this looks like in marriage. And so I offer you from the text this morning three principles. First of all is the principle of submission in marriage. Brothers and sisters, as Peter unfolds this text, I want you to be reminded of the words that he issues. He says, in the same way, in the same spirit of submission that I've already been talking about, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, what word? The word of the gospel. They may be one. One to Christ. One to salvation. One to their own forgiveness of sins by your behavior. And so, brothers and sisters, whether we are dealing with the civil magistrate, whether we are dealing with our bosses, whether they are gentle and kind or unreasonable, as he has said previously, or whether we are dealing with wives and husbands, here is the ultimatum. At what point is it too much for you to make Christ known? That's really where we are. None of this is for ourselves. None of this is to empower and to give despotic rule to magistrates, to bosses, to husbands. This is about making Jesus known so that people are one to Christ. And at what cost is it too much for any of us 
to say that is a submission too far. That is something I cannot do. I don't care that they won't be one to Christ. I live the way I desire to live. It isn't about submission for the sake of submission. It is about submission to show Christ. And so out of love for Christ, Peter is compelling his listeners, his readers, to submit and subject themselves in order to make Christ known because we love Jesus and we love the people that we serve more than we love ourselves. We want them to know forgiveness of sin more than we want to be in control. That's what it ultimately boils down to. Tom Westwood comments and he says this, The moment that we divorce the thought of subjection from that of affection, we have lost its God-given significance. The moment that we separate, divorce the thought of subjection and submission in any arena from that of affection. What affection? Affection for Christ. Affection for the eternal well-being of those whom we love. The moment we separate submission from affection, we lose its God-given significance. God gave us the ability to live submissive lives for the purpose of winning men and women to a saving knowledge of Jesus. That's what it's about. It isn't about control. It's about affection for Christ that drives earthly submission so that others may know him. And know him in a definitive way. Again, I understand that submission of wives and marriage is one of the greatest battlefields to engage upon this dialogue in. But it's also one of the most powerful. Because there is that sin nature that causes the battle between sinners, both in men and women. But in our text this morning, we're dealing specifically with women. Men, by the way, we get our turn next week. And believe me, it won't be any easier. Peter extols the virtue and the dignity of wives. I want you to notice something. Peter says in the same way, in other words, in the same methodology, they are to submit, but he does not compare the wives to slaves. He makes a distinction. Remember, he'd been talking about slaves previously to their masters. Here he he separates it. So what Peter is saying is that I don't view wives as slaves. I view them with great dignity. And he's going to get into that. And men, what a responsibility we have. And you'll see this next week, to care for our wives as a cherished Smithsonian worthy treasure. That's what our love is to do. But, but he separates, he says, while the mentality and the, the field and the calling to submission is the same, I am not, he is not calling wives slaves. That's not what he means by in the same way. But their mindset is one that is incumbent upon all Christians to be a slave to Jesus, the, the servant of Jesus, the servant of our husbands in this case. It refers to the heart attitude, the the actions, not the position. So in the same way, with the same heart, with the same attitude, in the same actions, submit yourselves to your own husbands. It's It's a reference of administration, not of value. It, it, it's a statement of order, not of dignity or worth. 
We are both created in the image of God. And so Peter is not saying, hey, listen, the husband's more valuable than the wives. And by the way, that's the feminist interpretation of this. So we've been told for decades now. Oh, yeah, but the biblical view is that women are less than men. Where? They obviously didn't read their Bibles, at least not in context and not in proper understanding or interpretation. That is not at all what Scripture ever teaches, ever. But that's what they've seized upon and lied about and misconstrued. Rather, she is of great value, but for the sake of order and administration, she fills a specific role. And it is in that role that Peter is saying you need to submit and be humble in that role to your husband, toward your husband. This is an order that was set by God in creation and because of sin has become difficult. Notice what God says in Genesis 3. Eve has fallen along with Adam. And God is pronouncing the curses for both of them, the things that will now change from a state of perfection and harmony and unity and beauty and glory. And in verse 16 of Genesis 3, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet, yet, Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That there will be a a conflicted desire for the man, and yet there will be also at the same time a desire to rule over the man and flip the order of creation on its head. Adam created first, then Eve, and sin seeks to flip that in its order. In the time of Peter's letter, this is an important historical note. In the time that Peter wrote this, in the era and the customs and the culture of Peter's day, Christian women in the Roman Empire possessed a significantly lesser status than women do today. Women were viewed more or less as property under Rome. They had no rights. This was not a good thing, but that is the truth. That is how the Romans, not God, that is how Romans viewed women. That makes the Bible countercultural even in its own day. To elevate women as the Bible did, as heirs together of the grace of life, that which he will go on and say momentarily, that was not true in the Roman Empire. Women could not be heirs. Yet Peter says women are heirs and not heirs of an earthly inheritance but a heavenly inheritance which is far greater they are highly valued in our economy so different than the way roman men thought and treated them and so especially where wives differed from the pagan religion of their husbands and i'm so thankful to have grown up in a christian home where both my mom and dad were christians and believers But that was very rare, you have to understand, in the early church. There were very few Christian households. It was, especially in the early days, one member of a household that would become a Christian and it would create instant dissension and disunity within the home, especially where the husband was still devoted to his pagan religion of often immorality and terrible things that were demeaning to women. It was hard for a Christian woman 
than to live in harmony with her husband and to continue to forbear with those types of lifestyles and practices. Divided homes, again, very, very common among the early church. And yet Peter says Christian wives can show. They can show and they can demonstrate a power of the work of the gospel in them that cannot be shown anywhere else. Notice Peter's statement. You are to show this submission not to men in general, but to your own husbands. Again, this is not... This is not a statement that denigrates women, rather it elevates women. The feminist movement says that the Christian view, again, untruthfully, that the Christian view of women is that they are subservient to all men. Peter doesn't say, go and submit yourself to every man on the planet. He said there's a specific context in which his order is to be shown. To your own husband. Not to me, Peter says. Not to... James or John or Paul, but your own husband. He is the the one God gave you to lead you and to order your home in such a way. Even though he is not a Christian, it's still part of created order. And so these newly born again Christian wives could show how the gospel allowed them to do that. It's not a, again, broad subjugation. It's an exaltation of women, and it is an exaltation of the institution of marriage. It is a beautiful and exclusive relationship in which the man was called to lead, the wife out of love for Christ, and her husband showed that she was capable of following that lead in obedience and love to Christ. Now, certainly, Peter has no thought of the wife sinning if the husband asks her to sin. That's different. Peter's not saying, hey, if he asks you to sin, if he asks you to blaspheme, if he asks you to renounce your faith, you've got to follow that. That's not what he's saying. As far, just as in every other case, whether it's to the magistrate or to the boss, as long as you can serve Christ and not sin, you are to be submissive. So women are not called to submit blindly. But where they can, they are to follow their husband's lead. Now, some have noted that there's an especially particular context of women in Peter's day that he was addressing. You have to understand that the pagan temple cults of Peter's day were absolutely filled with debauched living among men and women. Women prostituting themselves in their worship of these false gods. Unsubmissive, rebellious, uh, out of control at times. There are cases that you can study in ancient history, especially in cities like Corinth, in which there were massive uprisings of women that sought to overthrow all the men and to do great damage to society. And Peter is calling them out of that culture of, of debauched living, of, of, of being unfaithful even to their own husbands, and that being sanctioned in the pagan worship of the day. He's calling them out of that to shun the culturally acceptable norms of rebellion and immorality for a precious and exalted relationship of her husband. 
I'm not seeking other men. I'm not participating in the, the feasts of the God of Bacchus and all of these other uh, insanely wild orgies. But I'm devoted now to you and only to you. That's countercultural in Peter's day. Can I say that's countercultural in our day? We're, we're back to Rome. We're back to Corinth. We're back. And Peter's saying, a woman who's been changed, her heart has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, no longer participates in these rebellious ways, but submits herself in a way that her husband is thinking, what are you doing? Aren't you normally down at the temple on Thursday nights living it up? No, honey, I'm here. What can I do for you today? This is really weird. Why have you changed? What has gotten into you? And Peter's mindset is such that when women begin to live, that their husbands start asking those questions, then they can give an answer for the hope that is within them. Just as we all can, as we live counterculturally to the day in a beautiful and exalted way that exalts Christ, exalts our relationships. There is a sinful rebellion that, that is rooted in each of our souls that the sexual revolution has confiscated and it is destroying the beauty of true femininity and the dignity of committed marriages. It is absolutely trying to undermine all of it. And Peter is saying one of the best defenses of the gospel is if you refuse that. Reject that out of hand. And live for your own husband. When Christian women refuse the subjection and submission that Peter calls them to, they are serving themselves in such a way that detracts from what Christ has done in them rather than exalt what Christ has done in them. And they are allying themselves with the very enemies of the gospel, not with the proponents of the gospel. And the, the, the consequence to this, brothers and sisters, this is why it is so important. And by the way, this is why we see such an assault on this through feminism, through the sexual revolution, through transgenderism, through every other ism that we see on the, the horizon of the cultural shift among us today. It is because the consequence is literally life or death. For those who don't know Christ. This is an evangelistic endeavor that we must commit ourselves to. To show the power of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter is honest about that. He says you are to do this. So if your husband, if any of them are disobedient to the word. If they are rebellious to the command to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, they may be one without a word. A bloodless coup. No fights. Just by your kind, gentle spirit in the home, your husband may have all of his senses disarmed. And he may ask you, and you may tell him about the change that has occurred in you. These women, many of their husbands hostile to the gospel, 
Some of them are simply not hostile to the gospel, but simply unpersuaded. Others, no doubt, were given to doubt and resistance to it because it didn't make any logical sense in a very logical Greco-Roman world. But a godly wife, a godly wife could give feet and hands, not just words, but feet and hands to the message that her husband was rejecting in order to show how powerful it was, how beautiful it was, how good it was. Ladies, you possess a power of the sermon of life that our world desperately needs to see. A godly wife can navigate into places where these husbands would never have heard the message before. They're not going to go hear Peter preach. They're not going to go listen to Paul preach. They're going to find fault in it. They're going to be hostile to it. And yet you, living at home in such a way, you may get into the very core of their soul by your life. You can argue with the message for a brief time, but you cannot argue with the proof. And that's what Peter is saying. Be the proof. Show what Christ has done. The word preached and the life of the wife in the hand of the Spirit together were a powerful combination. Notice how Peter refers to this lifestyle. He says it is a chaste and respectful lifestyle. The word chaste is related to the word holy or saintly. It's the same Greek word that both come from. And again, she is no longer rebellious like the women of the culture that give their husbands grief. She's dedicated to him and to him alone. She's faithful. Who doesn't want that? Oh, we can talk about freedom. We can talk about how we've evolved as people. We can talk about how monogamy is for generations gone by, that we've experienced freedom and revolution in our world. And you can also talk in the same breath about the pain that that causes. No one likes to be cheated on. No one likes to be in a relationship with an untrustworthy person. We crave commitment. We crave fidelity. We crave love that Peter says only the gospel is capable of creating in someone. A commitment to those things. And so women, show him what he craves, even though he may deny it. He wants to see the power of the gospel in you. So don't serve yourself, serve him in order that he might see this. Show him what it looks like. Devote yourself to Christ by devoting yourself solely to your own husband. So with clear conscience and joyful freedom, being free from having to please myself, I'm going to seek the best of my spouse, my husband, my wife, my boss, the civil magistrate. Think of it this way. This Submissive living is the delivery vehicle by which the gospel message penetrates further and deeper into his life than anything else has. And you alone possess that. One of the, 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 the modern 
marvels of medicine is not simply the medication itself, but to understand how the medication works. You understand that there are certain medications that need to get to certain parts of the body in order to be absorbed properly. And so scientists and pharmacists are able to figure out delivery mechanisms. You know, we just take, take the pill and don't think about, okay, it works. How does it work? Because it's devised in such a way to get down to your intestines or your stomach or your colon or, or br- the brain through the bloodstream, through, through IV and how they layer those medications and how they break down and dissolve as they pass through the liver and are metabolized. It's, it's a miracle, really, the way God has made the body. I remember um, talking to, to Sean's dad, who's uh, an anesthetist, before a surgery that he was doing. And he was preparing the patient for surgery. And he was explaining to me that by giving certain medications first, that it gets to the certain part of the brain first. And then you layer this medication on top for anesthesia. So it is so complex. And that's what the life of a submissive wife is. It's beautiful. It's complex. It is well thought, and it gets to a part. It penetrates to places that other things can't because it is uniquely created by God to do that. And it lets her drive a message home with irrefutable proof. This is why the Christian church cannot buy into the the radicalization of feminism and other things that tell women something different than this. Literally, lives are on the line between heaven and hell. This is a gospel issue if ever there was one. And I don't just say that because that's the cool thing to say now. Peter says it is. They may be one by your chaste, your pure, your respectful behavior. It's penetrating to his core. So let's ask ourselves this question. Is the salvation of sinners whom you know important to you? Not just your husband, but your children. As they see a home well ordered. Your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. Is their salvation important to us? If it is, then submission has to be important to us. We have to prove that the gospel has taken away our selfishness. And we don't have to answer to that anymore. We don't have to. We can live freely unto Christ and to others. Peter Peter goes on, he gives a second principle. It's a principle of modest adornment. Again, drawing from the countercultural behavior that he has already delved into. For the sake of the gospel, these wives were to esteem their demeanor more important than external trimmings. There have been some traditions that have taken these verses way out of their context and said that women are to, you know, pursue a homely appearance. You know, they're to be as, 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 as basic as possible. No uh, external adornment at all. No jewelry, no makeup, no fixing of the hair. It's just to be plain. That's not what Peter's saying. I thank God I have a beautiful wife. I thank God that she 
cares what she looks like and that she fixes herself up and that she cares about her health and her appearance and any number of things. Peter's not denigrating that at all. But what Peter is saying is that you will never win an internal battle with external things. You can't win it through how much jewelry you wear. You can't wear it with the type of braiding. By the way, the braiding that they use that Peter talks about, Peter is not against braided hair. And some have taken that too far. So you can't fix your hair. That's not what he's saying. But the braiding that they would do would literally take hours upon hours upon hours and they would weave gold into it and jewels into the hair and it was an elaborate process and peter is saying simply rather than invest all your time and energy into that cultivate the things of the heart that's not what wins people the show doesn't win them the heart does and so cultivate the inward things of the heart External beauty, do you think beauty matters to God? Say yes. God is absolutely a God of beauty. Look at the world he created. Absolutely astounding. Beauty matters to God. Beauty should matter to us. And so Peter, again, let me drive that home. He is not against that. Song of Solomon extols the virtues of a beautiful wife. Revelation extols the the virtues of a beautiful bride for Christ, the church being purified and adorned properly for her wedding day. But the focus is on the heart. And so having committed yourself to submission to your husband, Christian wives understand the values that deploy that submission. It's things of the heart. It's internal. It's not merely external worldly goods. Your husband will be called. Your husband will see. Your husband will hear based on your life and your heart. Our culture, again, is so heavily invested in the outward appearance, isn't it? So heavily invested in the outward appearance. What happens if you're in an accident? What happens when old age does what old age does? It it takes away the physical vitality of our appearance. But some of the most beautiful people I've ever met were people with no external outward attractiveness about them. I think of one lady early on in our church who came in a wheelchair, couldn't walk. Her bones were like powder. She was blind. She had congestive heart failure. The world would look at her and say, there is no beauty in her whatsoever. But I'm telling you, a more beautiful heart you could have never found. She was the kindest, most joyful. She lit up the room when she came in. Absolutely, and and was like a magnet for people. That's what Peter's getting after. It's the internal things of the heart that matter. And wives, by cultivating that, you attract your husband's most important thoughts. What changed her? 
How can she live that way? How can she love me? How can she love our children so selflessly? And by the way, I'm thankful for so many women in this church that do that so well. It's an encouragement. How does she love her kids like that? How does she love her husband like that? Because Jesus made a change. That's why. She doesn't have to live for herself. She she doesn't have to, to fall into the cultural narrative of constantly serving yourself and everything in life being an inconvenience to you. It's quite sad that that's what so much of the culture portrays marriage as, portrays children as. And the mentality is, let's just get through this as fast as we can. That's not the inward beauty of the heart that wants to love and to serve like Christ loved and served her. And so her inward adornment is that of an intentionally cultivated. Now listen to this. Listen to this. It is power. When, when Peter says her adornment is not to be external, but of the hidden person of the heart with imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's translated in other places in the New Testament as meekness. Now, what do you think of when you think of meekness? Let me tell you what the world has trained you to think of when you think of meekness. Beat down, subservient, slavery. That's what meekness conjures up, isn't it? It's the punching bag. It's, it's, it's the person who just can't have a sane thought about their dignity or worth. They're just so lowly. That's not the biblical term. The biblical term of meekness or, uh, <clears throat> as Peter here says, a quiet spirit, a gentle and quiet spirit, is not one of no power, but one of ultimate power because it thinks not little of itself, but it thinks of itself very little. Does that make sense? Meekness is not thinking little of myself. Poor me. I have no self-worth or don't understand the dignity in which I was created. It simply doesn't think about itself. It doesn't sit around going, what am I? It thinks of others. And so Peter says, that is power. That is harnessed power when you don't have to be overly impressed by yourself. And let's face it, that's our natural temptation, isn't it? To be overly impressed with ourselves. Peter says, meekness. And by the way, Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek for they what? Inherit the earth. What are we told inherit the earth? The strong. The powerful. Jesus says that is real power. You want the earth? Be meek. Don't think less of yourself. Think of yourself less. And Peter says this is the the inward heart I'm talking about. Just not concerned about myself. I'm more concerned with Christ and others, particularly my husband. And who doesn't love someone who is not self-important? You know who you love to be around? You know who you gravitate to naturally? People that are not self-important. You know what you do to people that are self-important? Someone said of a mutual friend from days gone by, 
this week to me. I said, have you talked to so-and-so lately? He said, no, I haven't. He said, but what do you mean when, you know, you say talk to? He said, it's more like five minutes of conversation and 45 minutes of self-importance. So I just don't have time for that. People don't enjoy those who are self-important. So what Peter is saying, cultivate in your heart a lack of self-importance. Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet made himself of no reputation, of no self-importance, and took upon him the form of a slave and died for us. That is a life well-ordered. It is a life without chaos. It is a tranquil life. It's a stable life that Peter is calling these wives to. Such adornment cannot be taken down at the end of the night. It is literally enduring and imperishable. Those other things that make up, that hair, that jewelry, that all will go away. It will change. It must be taken off and constantly put back on. But what Peter calls you to, Christian wife, is something that never leaves. It's never out of season. It's not full of any impurity at all. It lasts and endures because God created it that way. And you were rebirthed by the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ to produce such fruit and such works. Ephesians 2.10 We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Galatians 5.22 and 23 But the fruit of the Spirit in you is... Gentleness, goodness, meekness, patience. Against such there is no law. Peter closes with a principle of legacy. He says you're to do this just like the women of old did it. There's a long line of godly women in the Old Testament for these New Testament women to look back on and say, that's how it's done. That's how it's done. The Proverbs 31 woman should jump to your mind immediately. This is not the picture of a woman chained in her house, barefoot and pregnant, cooking for her family begrudgingly, not allowed to see the light of day, beaten down while her husband is out gallivanting around having a great time. That's not the picture, is it, in Proverbs 31? She is dignified. She is full of grace. She is full of truth. She is full of industry. She is outwardly beautiful. She cares for her husband. She embodies everything Peter is talking about here. Because Christ has produced that in her. Don't buy the world's lies that that is what it looks like. Look at what scripture says this looks like. And look at the legacy of faith that you have been handed and women who have gone before you and women who are still among you that you can look at and say, no, there is a life worthy of imitation. How do you do that? Teach me. I want to be this kind of submissive wife. I don't want to hear what I want to hear. I want to hear what the word of God says. Teach me. And so they are... Peter links these ladies to ladies of the past who out of supreme love for God were able to express right relationship to their husband. 
Notice what Peter says. He, he brings up Sarah. Huh. Hey, let's be honest, ladies. Being married to Abraham, not exactly an easy man to be married to. Well, Father Abraham, the man of faith, right there in Hebrews 11. I mean, there's other people in the hall of faith, but Abraham, he's the, the chief of them all. Yeah, when was the last time your husband said, hey, don't tell him that, that I'm your husband. Tell him I'm your brother. I don't want him to you know, beat me up or anything. Kill me. You know, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll take your handmaid. You're not giving me any children. Bring it. I mean, Abraham's not the greatest guy in the world. That's what makes his salvation so incredible. And there have got to be times when Sarah looked at Abraham and said, you want me to do what? What is wrong with you? And yet Sarah is mentioned by Peter as being one who was... Submitted to her husband. She wasn't servile to Abraham, but she was submitted to him. Like Sarah. No, no, by the way, Sarah went along with the whole brother-sister thing, but in God's providence, he protected her from what could have been a very bad situation in Pharaoh's house. Could have been very bad. Ended very differently, but God was sovereign over that. Not a good, not a good chapter. And like Sarah, show your submission to your husband. Not calling him Lord as he's your master, but this is simply a a title of respect, of devotion. You know, if your husband's in the military, it does not necessitate that you call him by his rank. But it's simply an expression of respect for him, devotion to him. Love for him. Peter says, you have a legacy of faith that's been handed down to you, and you are her daughters. And by the way, she is a woman of faith. She is in heaven with Abraham, and she's your, uh, you know, she is your ancestor in the faith if you do what is right without being frightened by fear. Now, what Peter says in if here, using that, it's, it's not a conditional clause as though you had to work for your salvation. It's rather demonstrative. If you love your husbands like this, if you're demonstrating that, then you're, you're proving that you are her daughter in the faith. Not if as in you've got to attain it, if as in you're proving it. In such love and in such submission, there is no reason to fear. You hear that, brothers and sisters? If we submit to the Lord, if we submit to this, there is no reason to fear. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love. No fear in love. For doing the right thing, there is no fear. Does that mean that there are not consequences that are troubling? Yeah, there are sometimes. And it doesn't mean that Peter, again, is not saying that a woman should, you know, remain in an abusive relationship and say, oh, just don't worry about it, don't fear. That's not what he's talking about. That's just common sense. But what Peter is saying is, yeah, you know, it might be hard. Your husband might not treat you really kindly. He may say ugly things to you. He, he may be grouchy. He may not like your newfound faith. He may not like that you don't go to the temple with him anymore. But, but there's no fear of punishment. 
ultimately because you're living for God. There, there's no ultimate condemnation for you. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Your faith in Christ frees you from the greatest of all fears, and that is death. There's something greater than this life. There's no fear of the cultural backlash because your love for Christ is greater. You're not afraid of being mocked by the culture because you actually are loving your husband and being devoted to him. That's that's what Christ does. There's no ultimate fear of an unbelieving husband because Christ matters more. You love Christ and you love your husband, therefore. There's no fear because you know you're doing the right thing. Again, not espousing, staying where it is physically dangerous or harmful for you. But saying, you know, even though it's difficult, even though we don't see eye to eye, even though it's caused friction, I'm not afraid. Trusting in the Lord that he'll use this somehow. So do we love Christ? Do you love Christ? Is the demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ changing you where you don't have to lash out at him, where you don't have to rule over him, where you don't have to rule the roost, so to speak? Is it so changed you that you're able to do this? If you love Christ, do you want Christ to be seen in that change? Then learn to submit to Christ. That's really what this is about. It's submitting to Christ. We just show it and show the importance of Christ by submitting to the order of earthly life that God has ordained in government, in the workplace, in the home. And as Peter will close out, generally everywhere. This is what we are called to as believers. Our new nature can only be clearly demonstrated. Hey, as Peter says, man, When things are easy, what good does it do? You're not proving anything when things are easy. It's when things are hard that you show the change. May God help us all to be so submitted, so love Christ, that we want to show the change that he's made in us wherever we are. But these are the relationships that we spend the most time in and have the most impact in. This is our sphere of influence. May God help us to be faithful. May God help us to love him supremely. And in loving him supremely, love and care about the spiritual condition of those whom we are called to serve. And may eternity look different. May may, may there be people in heaven won by our humble, meek disposition. One to Christ. Escaping the fires of hell. Because they see what a difference Jesus makes, which then gives us the platform to tell them about the difference Jesus makes. Great opportunity. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the hearing of this word again would find a a tender and fertile place upon which to fall and that you would use our commitment and love for you to make an impact on those around us. Oh Lord, how we need this. How our world needs to see Christians who embrace this call so that they might be one to Christ. Use us, Lord, 
temper our hearts and our minds with the gospel. Remove self and self-importance from our thinking and make yourself our supreme desire. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.